Welcome to the Spooky Tales podcast presented by me, John. And me, Louise. We have been fascinated by spooky goings-on since we can remember and wanted to share with you the stories that pique our interest. Shout-outs to Spooky Holden and Sandra, Wendy from Australia, Darren from North Carolina, and wonderful Victoria for all her lovely comments. Today's story is of passion, murder, infamy, hauntings, manipulation, and an unexpected twist. It's the spooky tale of the ghost's revenge. So welcome to the Spooky Tales podcast. What's today's spooky tale? We have two tales of murder and revenge taken from a lovely book called True Ghost Stories by Steph Young, and also from good old Wikipedia, which I'll link to in the show notes. Our first spooky tale takes us to Chesterless Street, back in the spooky county of Durham. Ooh, it's a spooky place. The Hexham Heads, the Red Ribbon Witch, and now this one. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> yes, Red Ribbon... <laughs> <laughs> Let's try that again. It's the Red Ribbon Witch. That's not easy. <laughs> no. Yes, indeed. So let me take you back to 1631. How not- old were you then? I was very much still in my early teens. <laughs> still a youth. <laughs> yes. And as I can remember, not a lot was going on in England. However, in India, Mumtaz Mahal dies in childbirth, causing her husband, Shah Jahan, to commission the Taj Mahal as a mausoleum for her which was finished in 1653. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I've been there. I've been there. And it is just the most amazing place. It's just beautiful. What's so lovely about it? Well, when we went, is it's the way that you go in it, you see this kind of red building that seems all very nice and there was lots of people. We actually went very early in the morning just as the sun was coming up. And you don't see the Taj Mahal to begin with. And then as you're walking through this entrance building, it's presented to you. It's just spectacular. You don't get glimpses of it until you see the whole of it. And it's in this beautiful uh, set of gardens. And round the actual mausoleum was quite busy. But just to the side, we just walked to the side for, for you know, five minutes respite from the, the people. And it was just so peaceful and the atmosphere there was just amazing absolutely loved it oh it sounds amazing anyway yes. there was a, a medium who went there called deborah and apparently she communicated with a lady ghost in the mausoleum itself Ooh, i say anyway back to spooky durham oh yes a wealthy widower called william walker decided to hire a housekeeper enter anne mr walker and anne became close and one thing led to another. As these things do. Yes, indeed. And before you can say, pass the dusters, Anne fell pregnant. I say. Now, William Walker was not keen. On what? Her being pregnant. Oh, I see. He did not want his reputation tarnished and tongues in the village were starting to wag. Oh, I'm not say. I'm not surprised. Tarnished? Why would it be tarnished? Because Anne was his housekeeper? Well, more the fact that her, she was his niece. Oh, no! 
Oh, oh I didn't see that one coming. Oh, his knee. Yes, that's right. Oh, so, maybe get in the family. <laughs> to, to try to avoid any scandal. In which case it would have been a scandal. Yes, he told Anne he was sending her away until after the baby was born. I think a lot of people did that in those days, didn't yeah. they? So he, was, he told her that he would stand by her and support her and the child. Oh, yes. Well, in March, he sent her to live with her aunt in Lumley telling the villagers that she had gone away to live in the city of Durham. Anne was popular in the village, so they were surprised that she did not try to contact them to let them know how she was doing in Durham. Oh dear, this sounds a bit ominous. Indeed. No more was heard of her until a local farmer called James Graham enters the story. Oh dear, I've got a good feeling about this. Yes, I know, it does sound ominous, doesn't it? The harvest that year had been excellent. Oh, that's good. Yeah, well, for James. And to make the most of it, it meant that James was up late night after night in his mill making flour. He would work alone by candlelight, happy that his family would eat well that year. Good man. One night, however, he became aware that the mill had become icy cold, sending a shiver down his spine. I'm beginning to shiver myself. And as James scanned the darkness, he became aware that he was not alone in the room. Oh dear. Then, to his horror, <gasps> he saw coming directly in front of him a woman. <gasps> Blood was dripping over her face from ghastly wounds in her head. <gasps> she stared at James with an expression of torment, which you might expect with such nasty head wounds. Yes, absolutely. You don't look happy, do you? No. To quote an account written by Robert Surtees in 1816... Bob, as I like to call him. Yeah, Bob. Bob, Bob Surtees, Surtees, I think, was his, 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 uh, his known moniker. No, you wouldn't call him Bobby, would you? Bobby Surtees. No, no, it's no, not Bob. Bobby. Definitely Bob. Yeah. Bob. Um, yeah, so the miller... The Bobster. <laughs> that's right. So to quote from an account by the Bobster Surtees in 1816, the miller, being much affrightened, began to bless himself and at last asked her what she wanted. Oh, Finally, asking her what she wanted. Anyway, I'm surprised he didn't scarp her Scooby-Doo styly. Did she answer? Did she say anything? Well, before I say, it's worth noting that our son's just told us that there is a new Scooby-Doo movie coming out in next year, in yes, 2020. And exactly, he was actually told us this just after I had said Scooby-Doo. Yes, he, came, he actually came and interrupted us. <laughs> to tell us about the Scooby-Doo movie, and he didn't hear this. So no, that was quite a coincidence. Indeed it was. So did she answer? Well, yes, she said, and I quote, loosely here. I am the spirit of Anne Walker. I have been murdered. I lived with your neighbour William Walker. Being got with child by him, he promised to send me to a private place where I should be well looked to. Then I should come again to his house. But I was betrayed by him. I was told to go with Mark Sharp, a collier, who upon a moor slew me with a pick and threw my body into a coal pit. She's quite chatty, isn't she? She is. Walker paid him. He couldn't get the blood off his shoes and clothes, so he hid them as well. Oh, so he went back naked. Uh, do you know, he must have done, mustn't yeah. he? If you do not tell about this crime, I will haunt you forever! She didn't actually do that last time, <laughs> did she? <laughs> God, it's true. I'm not quite sure she went, forever! Well, actually, she was quite How? chatty, wasn't she? I mean, yes. she had a lot to say. Indeed, and by the way that she was looking at him, James believed her. 
did she do that thing with her with her fingers where she did from my eyes to your eyes? From my eyes to your eyes. I, 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 it's a universal symbol. It for doesn't, I'm telling you this. Neither of the accounts that I've read have said that. However, no. I reckon she did. I will haunt you forever. That's right. Oh, it's nasty though. It was. So her uncle, who was the father of their child, who who got her with child, paid a local coal miner to do her in. Yeah. She then haunted James the Miller to go and tell the authorities. Why didn't she go and haunt the other chaps? Well, this exactly, yeah. That's, Why did she, right. you know, say turned over in the middle of the night? Her there going morning. Yeah, so this poor old James Miller person. Yeah, yeah, he was working hard for the benefit of his family. Yeah. Night after night. I know, picking on him. Rum deal. Yeah, yeah, but that's not all. One source, an account of the story in Arthur J. Hayward's Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, written in 1735. Sounds riveting. Yeah, well, yes. Uh, I didn't read all of it. No. Arthur says, and I quote, Her old master Walker and one Mark Sharp, with whom he was extraordinarily intimate, which well. sounds a bit old, yeah. doesn't it? Came to her aunt's house and took the said Anne Walker away. Extraordinarily intimate. That's a good phrase, isn't it? I might use that in future. <laughs> what a thing to say, eh? So two things here. One, how helpful was she de- detailing the how and the who? I do like mm-hmm. that. She'd obviously had some time to think about it yes. as she'd been murdered. And why did she go to the miller? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, she picked on him, threatening him with the with the haunting if he didn't comply. I, I do think that's harsh, I actually. know. It's, that's exactly what I thought. There's why go to the miller? Yeah. Anyway, what did James do? Well, after she disappeared, he was in shock. The awful appearance with the head wounds and the blood and all the blood, oodles of it, so much blood, and the terrible anger in her voice. He must have hallucinated the whole thing in some form of overtired waking nightmare. Once he got back to the farmhouse and into bed, he struggled to get to sleep. Eventually, he did drift off and awoke next morning feeling better. It must have been a nightmare of sorts. It was beyond ludicrous that a ghost was going to haunt him if he didn't tell the authorities that the respected Mr. William Walker was a murderer. He decided to pull himself together and did the decent British thing and told no one. Not even his dog. Oh, well, if he's not even going to tell his dog, it must be serious. So did that approach work? Was it just a nightmare? It appeared it must have been an exhaustion-based nightmare, as for the next night, she did not appear. However, the feeling did not leave him. His wife noticed that he had become quiet and subdued. I notice when you become quiet and subdued, don't I? Yes, that's normally because I've had some sort of nightmarish um, vision (laughs) in the the mill when I'm grinding for corn. Not normally. (laughs) Anyway, his wife noticed that he'd become quiet and subdued and when she asked him what was wrong, he simply shrugged and said that he didn't know what she meant. Oh my God, it is you and I. (laughs) This is you and I in 1600s. (laughs) What do you mean? Nothing's wrong. Oh my Lord. Perhaps it was both of us in a past life then. Yeah. Yes, he felt no quieter than normal. Yes, it is literally (laughs) you and I having this conversation. God, this is like kind of relationship counselling for us from from the past. Yes. A few nights later, after another hard but rewarding day's work, he was fast asleep in bed with his wife. He suddenly became aware that the air around him was ice cold. Then, as he became more awake, he felt his blanket rise from his body. Oh, dearie me. He girded his loins and opened his eyes. Oh, how do you gird your loins? (laughs) I don't know what that means. I got that phrase from you. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I think I've just quoted it. Honestly, I don't know what it means. I guess it's kind of... Yes, it's sort of, kind of grabbing your underpants and... <laughs> Pulling them up sharpishly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, so what did he say? 
It was the bloody face of Anne floating above him. Oh no! Oh, so much blood so pouring much blood. down her face. And it was onto her clothes and oh. her eyes. Oh no, were they pouring with blood? No, that's a bit sick. <laughs> well, I just thought with the oodles of blood that you'd been talking about. Yes, but they, their eyes, they were filling with tears. Oh. She was sobbing her heart oh, out. No. She was upset at the injustice of it all and begging James to go and tell the authorities to tell them how she had been viciously and brutally murdered, axed to death by an assassin hired by her uncle, the father of her murdered child. Well, she really... Well, she's got a good point there. There's a lot to be upset about. Yeah, exactly. Again, she got angry and fierce and told the poor Miller that she would haunt him relentlessly until he did her bidding. <laughs> but why, why is she picking on him? I don't know. Well, maybe it's because he's the only one capable capable of sensing and seeing her or something like that. Or perhaps he was just unlucky or she never really liked him when she was alive and thought, right, double revenge. So did he tell the authorities this time? No. Again, he put his uh, mad night terror down to, well, a a night terror. A horrible, blood-filled nightmare. Well, who would believe such an outlandish tale? I mean, I suppose they'd assume that he had some sort of grudge against William Walker, perhaps, maybe? Quite. So did she keep haunting him like she said she would? Yes. She appeared to him in his own garden as he came home from the mill. She spoke to him with such force and so threateningly that at last he gave in and promised to go and tell the magistrate in the morning. And did he? He did. I quote from Arthur J. Hayward's Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals again. On the morrow, being St. Thomas's Day, he applied to the Justice of the Peace and told him the story. The Justice, having tendered him his oath, and taking his information in writing, forthwith issued his warrant and apprehended Mr. Walker and Mark Sharp, who by trade was a collier, i.e. he dug coals out of a mine. They made light of the thing before the justice, although he, in the meanwhile, had caused a place which Graham said the apparition had spoken of to be searched. Who's Graham? Is it James Graham? Oh, yes. <laughs> so in the meantime so in the meantime <laughs> it caused the place which no I'll go back they made light of the thing before the justice although he in the meanwhile had caused a place which Graham as in James Graham the Miller you know everybody else would have worked <laughs> yeah, it's only just you me. that got, got confused <laughs> said the apparition have spoken of to be searched and there found the dead body wounded in place and manner as before described with the pick, the shoes and the stockings. I say, pardon, where did the stockings suddenly come into When you get that back to the sort of intimate, they knew him intimately and so on. It all looks a bit seedy, doesn't it? Extraordinarily intimate. Extraordinarily intimate, yes. yes. However, Walker and Sharp were admitted to, uh, were admitted bail and at the next assizes appeared upon their trial. So after all of that, they did actually believe Jane? They sort of did. The justice did order the search and uh, where he said the body would be found and lo and behold it was with his with her stocking <laughs> yes but it not only spooked the magistrate but also the judge and the jury at the trial also at the durham assizes in 1632 right durham assizes 
So this is a court, a kind of, is it a travelling court or is it a court that is always there? Yes, exactly. Before we had a sort of single permanent Crown Court, there, um, which was set up under the Courts Act in 1971, Assizes dealt with the main criminal cases, which were periodic courts held around England and Wales. So you said that the judge and the jury were spooked also. Yes, yes. So Judge Davenport saw the ghost of Anne standing behind the widow. Oh, my word! And the foreman of the jury saw a ghost of a <gasps> child standing on the shoulders of the accused, oh. as did another member of the jury as well. Oh my word, this is quite unpleasant. As soon as the jury found them guilty, he sentenced them to death straight away, rather than waiting to the end of the assizes. And they were hanged. Anne had her ghostly revenge. She did indeed. Well done that, Anne. Yes, well done, Anne. And well done, James. Yes, he must have thought, well, why, did, why on earth you wanted to come to me? I don't yeah. know, but okay, just to get rid of you. Like, it's amazing how, they, how they, they sort of, you know, just went, oh, well, okay, well, we'll, we'll have a look anyway. But what He seems really insistent. Is, yeah, they must have been something. They obviously were extraordinarily intimate, because otherwise, how would you know that that collier would go and do such a thing to a woman? Yeah. And he was, you know, with... That's a good point, actually. actually. It's not like, you know, any old chap, is it? Yes, I wondered if it was... murkiness a, going. yeah. Yes, because I wondered if that was a bit of a throwaway line from their point. But no, there probably was something going on, wasn't there? Well, I, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Because otherwise, how would he know? Because that's, so, a, so that's the collier, a bad not, So thing. the collier, the big butch collier, did it for love? Oh, well, you're taking it down a whole new road Have I, have I just misunderstood what you were saying? <laughs> no, well, no, no. I think I think it could be, because either, there must have been something between them, whether it was love, as you're <laughs> suggesting, or whether it was something else. Because otherwise, how would he know... Walker, mm. bad man. Yeah. How would he know that he would? He could ask Mark Strong could, to, yeah. to do that. Yeah. I don't know what he's got. Mark Strong. It's Mark Sharp, wasn't it? Yes. All of us. He was slur. Yeah. No, not Mark Strong. No. no. Our next tale comes from a small and very rural village of Polstead in Suffolk in the year 1826. Oh, so what was happening in 1828? Did I say 1826? Yes, I meant 1828. Well, in that year, present-day Argentina was founded. Wow. It was called Baja Blanca then. Pardon? Uh, Argentina? Baja, yes, was called... It wasn't called Argentina in 1828. It was called really? Bahia Blanca. Wow. Yes. I, did, I did not know that. Well, nor did I, until I, I looked it up. Uh, so Wikipedia tells us that the Democratic Party in the US was organised in 1828, which was lucky, as Andrew Jackson went on to win the presidential election that year. Ooh. Wikipedia also mentions in things that happened that year our tale from Polstead. Really? It's that famous? Indeed it is. It was so famous that at the time, the village became a tourist attraction with several thousand visitors descending on the small village in the year. Wow! Plays were written about it and much more, as we shall soon discover. Wow! I've, just, I've never heard about this. So what happened? Well, once again, the tale begins with an unmarried young lady. I think many tales begin with an unmarried. Yes. Well, certainly ones with sort of ghostly revenge, anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, her name was Maria Martin, and she was in a difficult situation, and she already had two children out of wedlock with different fathers. Ooh, over the brush. Living yeah. over the brush. Yes, which gave her a bit of a reputation as a fallen woman of wanton behaviour. Oh. Well, it made it difficult for her to find suitable work or a suitable husband. I'm just going to have to say, those two fathers, though... Two, they've just obviously left their responsibilities, haven't they? They've had their way with her. Yeah. And then, you know, not keeping up with what they had to do, you know. No, well, one of them uh, was, a, was a, of the landed gentry. 
And he did uh, give her money for the child, but the, on condition that she had nothing to do with him. <gasps> That's bad. Yes, but the other one uh, didn't couldn't care less. What, both of them? Yeah. Bad men. Yeah, but he probably, the landed gentry person probably thought he was doing the right thing by giving her money, just, you know, keep away. He shouldn't have been having his way with her. No. And she's the one that's... Anyway, let's not go. I'll just get off my soapbox. Excuse me, I'll just jump out. No, that's all right. It's a very good soapbox to be on. Thank you very much. Right, so she was born in 1801, which incidentally was when Napoleon had just surrendered Egypt to the British, who took all the treasures, including the Rosetta Stone, back to the British Museum. Maria was the daughter of Thomas Marden, who was a mole catcher. A mole catcher? What, what would he do with these moles? Well, he'd make them into gloves. Oh, did not see that one coming. <laughs> yes, that's right. In 1826, Maria had started a relationship with William Corder, son of a local farmer who was two years younger than Maria and had a dodgy reputation. He was known as a bit of a fraudster and a ladies' man, even getting the name Foxy at school due to his sly nature. I suspect that if he had been at Hogwarts, he would have been in Slytherin. Mm, yes, I completely say. So what had he done to get this reputation? He had sold his father's pigs fraudulently. Oh. He was passing off dud checks to the value of £93, which Gosh. in those days was an awful lot of money. Well, it's not cheap now. Well, indeed. And having a known criminal steal a pig from a neighbouring village. It's kind of a lot of pig crime. Yes, well, the thief was called... Well, it was in the in sort of Pigsville, isn't it? Yes. Oh, um, yes, at Suffolk. Yes. yes. The thief was called Samuel Beauty Smith, aided and abetted by the prostitute called Hannah Fandango. Foxy, Beauty and Fandango stealing pigs. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a book title. That is magnificent. <laughs> Foxy, Beauty and Fandango steal pigs. <laughs> You're right. We should write that. <laughs> we should write that. I love the name Fandango. It's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? Yes. After the pig-stealing debacle with Beauty and Fandango, oh, Foxy... Just, let's just pause and just have a little moment for the appreciation of that. <laughs> I'll say it once more. After the pig-stealing debacle with Beauty and Fandango, Foxy had been sent to London in disgrace to join the Navy. You see, in those days, going to sea, as Dr Johnson famously put it, was akin to going to prison with the added danger of drowning. <laughs> That's a good one. However, he failed the entry test due to poor eyesight. And so I would have done as well. Terrible eyesight. <laughs> yeah, me too, I expect. He didn't fancy returning home, so he got stuck into some petty crime in London. He wasn't too good at this and returned back to Polstead with his foxy tail between his legs. That year was a harsh winter and his father and two brothers succumbed to tuberculosis. The father died and the two brothers were permanently disabled, leaving young Foxy as the main man at the farm. It was at this time that he started secretly seeing Maria Martin. One of the places they used for their liaisons was the Red Barn. Ooh, I wonder if it was called the Red Barn because it was red. It was, yes, it had a red roof. Oh, okay. Well, it wasn't long before Maria was pregnant. Oh, gosh. Foxy said that he would marry her once the baby had been born. Oh, child was born but died three weeks later. Oh. They decided to bury the child in secret. Yeah. Maria could face a public whipping for having a child out of wedlock. Oh dear. He told her he would help her escape and said they were to meet at the Red Barn. From there they would run away together to be married. I'm not sure I believe him. Well days went by and the mother and father were worried as they had not heard from their Maria. Then a letter arrived from Maria saying that she was well 
and living in the Isle of Wight with Foxy. Oh, well, that's, that's good. But the only odd thing was that the letter was actually written by Foxy's hand, oh. as Maria explained that she had hurt her hand and could not write. Oh. She said not to worry and that she was happy. Oh. Several more of these letters arrived over the following months, all written by Foxy, as Maria's hand had st was still not strong enough to write herself. Yeah, now that's beginning to sound a little bit ominous. Did they not suspect anything? Well, not until the mother, well, stepmother actually, started seeing the ghost of Maria in very vivid and realistic dreams. Ooh. And in these visitations, the ghost of Maria would implore the stepmother to go to the red barn where they would find her body. Oh, that's giving me the shivers. The stepmother, called Anne, became convinced by Maria's ghost that she was indeed buried under the floor of the Red Barn on the land of Foxy's farm. The father was eventually convinced by his wife's nightly ghostly visitations and agreed to go and asked permission to dig around in the Red Barn. Ooh. Permission was granted by the man running the farm in Foxy's absence. The father, called Thomas, and the stepmother, Anne, went to the barn where... Actually, it's amazing they gave um, permission, wasn't it? Do you mind if I dig around in your barn? I'm looking for a dead body. Oh, yeah, go help him. Well, they may not have told him. Well, I suppose they were obviously convincing, weren't they? And it wasn't like it was Foxy. Himself. Well, they weren't asking her Foxy, no. One assumes Foxy. he would have said, no, no, certainly not. Yeah. So the father, Thomas, and his stepmother, Anne, went to the barn where Anne once more Ooh. saw the ghost of Maria as she guided them to the very spot where she was buried. Now, I'm imagining her, the ghost kind of going over, going, ooh, and then, ooh. That's, that's exactly pointed. it. Ooh. No, that's exactly right. There's a, no. there's, a, there's a picture been drawn of it, and that, of that, she's sort of floating over the floor, pointing just as you've just pointed. Going, ooh. Yes, like that. yeah. that's right. I don't know if she's going, ooh, but yeah, yeah. She probably was. Probably. So Thomas dug down with one of his mole-catching spikes and plunged it into the ground. On retracting the spike attached to it was some decomposing flesh. Oh, that's kind of gross. Yeah, although badly decomposed, she was still identifiable by her physical characteristics. Ooh, what were those? I'm intrigued. <laughs> she was known to be missing a tooth. Yes. And the jawbone of the dead woman was also missing a tooth. I bet she wasn't the only woman around at that time <laughs> that was missing a tooth. I mean, that's slim, if you don't mind <laughs> it me saying. It is a little bit, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. She was formally identified by her sister at the inquest, held at the local pub called The Cock, which is still there in Polstead today. Really? Yes. The, the pub, that is. Yes. Yeah. So the fact that Maria was wearing a green handkerchief around her neck was proof positive that it was Foxy that did it. What? 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 You can seem to leap there. How? Well, Foxy, or William Corder, as we shall now call him, was known to have a green handkerchief. Dun, dun, dun. And this one was thought to be his. Yes. Also, a witness said that he had seen him going towards the barn with an axe. Well, it's not exactly compelling evidence. A handkerchief that might have been his. I can't believe he's the only person with a green handkerchief. Seeing going to a barn on his own land with an implement that was probably used, you know, relatively often. Yes, and don't forget the ghost of Maria. Oh, yes, and the testimony of the stepmother being led to the grave by Maria's ghost. So, well, actually, I suppose that's pretty good, actually, that bit. I'm not sure about the other bits. So where had Foxy, or William Corden, is it Corden? Yes, had gone to them. Had he not gone to the Isle of Wight on no, Hollywobs? No, he'd gone back to London. But it didn't take long to capture him as the local constable. Hey, 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 I thought the police weren't formed in 1828. I thought it was the next year, 1829. Well, that's right. Until then, the only form of policing was by local constables, which was a post that the men took in turns to do for a year, unpaid. 
Normally, once a murder had been committed, there would be what's called a hue and cry, which was everyone joining in to track down the killer. A hue and cry was abolished the year before in 1827. A hue and cry was an actual thing? Yeah. Didn't know that. It was. That's what it was. People, oh, that was everyone what, gathering together, together, village gathering together to look for the murderer. Oh, so now we have the phrase a hue and cry, meaning a mm-hmm. big kerfuffle. Yeah. And it comes from that? Well, who knew? Oh, I see. So Foxy wasn't difficult to track down in London? Did somebody just give the constable his address? Well, actually, yes, they oh. did. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> yeah, a so called friend yeah. gave the constable the address. Oh, can we do air quotes? So called. Friend. friend. Yes, that's right. He had married and set up a boarding house for ladies in Brentford. I beg your pardon, he got married? Set up a boarding house? That was quick. Yes. Well, he put an advert in the Times, the Sunday Times and the Morning Herald. And, and got replies? Well, obviously, but seriously, he got replies? Yes. In fact, he got nearly 200. Really? One assumes he didn't write single axe murderer looking for new prey. The constable went to the boarding house under the pretences of looking for a room for his daughter and then nabbed old Foxy in the kitchen to the surprise of the onlooking boarding ladies eating their dinner. I'm not surprised. Now, the trial completely turned the country a little bit do-lally. It was the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. The trial was held in Bury St Edmunds. Which is very nice and actually not that far from us. They had to put the trial back to August the 7th due to the amount of interest in the case. The hotels were sold out. Well, less hotels and more coaching inns, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, the, uh, the coaching inns were sold out and people started arriving on the 21st of July. Wow. Admittance to the court was by ticket only due to the numbers wanting to get in. Now, this did not deter people and they just waited outside. So much so that the judge and the barrister had to push their way through the crowds bodily to get through to the courts. So did the stepmother testify about seeing the ghost and how it led them to where Maria was buried? Yes, star witness. The jury took just 35 minutes to return a guilty verdict. He was hanged on August the 11th, 1828 in Bury St Edmunds in front of a crowd of 20,000 people. 20,000 people? Good Lord, the pubs must have been heaving that day. It was so popular and such an industry that had surrounded the case that plays were being performed as Foxy was awaiting his trial. Several more plays were written and continued to be performed in pubs and theatres up and down the land. Books of the murder and trial were also written. Good Lord. Well, in fact, in fact, there were there was uh, plays written and performed in 1990. On what the about radio. this? On, yeah, on the radio. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Anyway, after he was taken down from the gallows, students from Cambridge University attached a galvanic battery to his muscles to use his body for the study of galvanism. Is that to see that if the muscles contracted, that kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. Also, a phrenological examination of his skill was carried out. What, as in phonology? Yeah. Is that, is that right, phonology? Mm-hmm. Is that the study of lumps and bumps on people's heads and says what it says about the characters. The very same. That's like, you know, we've got the, the, that sort of phrenological head. Yes, yeah. we do. We have a, we have a, um, I don't know, is it ceramic? Is it ceramic? Whatever, yeah. Yeah, it can break. Right head and it's yeah. got all the drawings of what, if you were to feel a bump on somebody's head in that particular place, it would tell you what about, it, tell you about them, wouldn't it? What kind of character. Yes. They have. That's right. Murderous, no doubt. For Foxy. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that. Um, what did they find? So, 
Um, well, let me quote from a chap called Gatrell. Who's Gatrell? I've absolutely no idea. Anyway, he says that they found, and I'll quote him, that the skull was asserted to be profoundly developed in the areas of secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, philoprogenitiveness, well done. Uh, uh, thank you, and imitiveness, and little evidence of benevolence or veneration. All in all. Dude. Yes, but that's not all. No? No. Remember at the start of the tale, I said that thousands of tourists came to the village of Holstead in the following year? Yes. Well, they took away souvenirs. They hacked down the barn and set up a small industry selling pieces of it. No, that's great. Yes, yeah, so you could buy little pieces of the red barn. Well, what you were told was the red barn. Well. I may be a bit cynical, but that's just horrid. Indeed it is, yes. So the memorabilia and curiosity on the case takes a more morbid turn. Foxy, William Corden's skeleton, was displayed in a glass case in West Suffolk Hospital, where it had been rigged up to point its arms towards the collection box once anybody approached. Oh, that's unpleasant. It is a bit ghoulish, but a bit funny though, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, well, yes. Sometime later, Dr John Kilner decided to remove the skull of this skeleton to add it to his red barn memorabilia. However, as soon as he had had it in his possession, he was plagued by bad luck and spooky occurrences, which he attributed to the skull, believing it to be cursed. Oh, really? What, what kind of thing? Well, any candles in the same room as the skull would never stay lit and be continually snuffed out. Oh, that's going to be irritating. Absolutely. One day, his maid said that there was a man who had come in for a late appointment. But when Dr Kilner went to the waiting room to invite him into his office, no one was there. Ooh. Although he could sense a shadow in the room, as if a presence was there. Ooh, dear me. The maid insisted that she had let the man in and shown him to the waiting room. A few days later, he watched his door handle turn and he leapt up to open the door. But the hallway was empty, so he rushed to the front door. But upon opening it, he was knocked off his feet by a violent gust of wind. Oh my. After more uneasy occurrences... He persuaded a friend to take it off him. But this did not stop the curse, which now affected both men. Eventually, at their wit's end, they paid a priest for the skull to have a Christian burial to try to end the curse. And did it? I think so. It's mentioned no more. Dr Kilner, who also had, as part of his memorabilia, William Calden's skull. Oh, that's gross! Which ended up in the Moises Hall Museum in Bury St Edmunds, along with a book written about the murder which had been bound with William Corden's skin. Oh, that is a very nasty! It certainly is. So, that's the end of another spooky tale. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this spooky tale. We look forward to joining you again next time. Please do tell us your spooky tales, either in the YouTube comments or... Via email, which is thespookytalespodcast at gmail.com. And come and follow us on Instagram at the Spooky Tales Podcast. Or why not visit us on our Facebook page at Spooky Tales. Thanks again. Until next time. Bye. Bye.